Landline. Hi, this is Saul. I'm hoping to speak to Alex McKay. <laughs> this is him. Salutations, podcast listeners. This is Alex McKay himself. Welcome to another edition of Landline Podcast. Today's episode, we talk about cute girls with full sleeves at the Apple Store in San Francisco. We talk about landline phones at length and the lost art of calling your friends' parents. We do some news talk about 75-year-old business school professors. I mean, listen to that lineup. What's not to like? If you like the show already, spread the news. Tell a friend. Mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Send them to iTunes. Send them to SoundCloud. Send them to talkforaliving.com. It's going to take a village to build a podcast once Hillary Clinton is the next Richard Nixon. So let's do it. Here we go. On location in Hanover, New Hampshire, it's Landline Podcast. Enjoy. Hi, Saul. Can't see that. How's it going, Alex? Line line. I gotta say, this this brought back a lot of memories dialing this number. It felt pretty good. Landline on location in beautiful Hanover, New Hampshire, our hometown. I am sitting in my dad's home office looking at 30 years of New Yorker cartoons that he uh, cut out, 30 years of Dartmouth women's basketball schedules that he's put up, and various random photographs that he's taken and cut out from the newspaper. And as you recognize, this is the phone number of my high school telephone line. Now, two things to start off. First, you can mention to your dad when you see him that I do still have his book, Stalingrad. I haven't lost it. I took it from Nantucket, and I'm prepared to return it at some point in the future. He'll be glad to know that you took interest in it. Did you read any of it? Oh, are you kidding me? Uh, Not only did I read it, but I developed such an affinity for the author, a British military historian by the name of Anthony Beaver that I then read everything else he's written. And in fact, I'm currently reading his new one. I think I read about five to 6,000 pages of World War II history based on that book, Stalingrad. So this is going to work out great for both of you in the future because when you're both stuck at a cocktail party of mixed generations put together by someone's mom, you'll have a way to not talk to all the kids that you were friends with in high school that you've been avoiding for the last 10 years. And he'll have a military history discussion to have with somebody. So I think this is paving the way for some really good work in the future. Well, I, I couldn't look forward more to cracking a Bud Light with your father sitting on a couch and not talking to anyone else in their room for a couple hours. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, this is it is it does bring back memories for all of us. Uh, this six, four, three, one, six, six, seven number. And, you know, one way to frame why I got my own phone line is that I was spoiled. But on the other hand, it uh, reflects a time in history when people didn't have cell phones. They only had landlines. And you got your kid a landline not because you thought he deserved one, but because you didn't want his friends calling your fucking phone number anymore. 
Exactly. And you know the craziest part about that whole era of time? The thing is that life somehow continued. We went on just fine. Nobody, the world didn't come screeching to a halt because you couldn't text someone and find out why they were running five minutes late. It is one of the weirdest things that the contrast between that time and this time is so stark, and yet we really have no recollection of what that's like. Has anything evaporated so quickly as the let's meet there at this time? And, and Yeah, you made, you made a plan to meet, and if you wanted to reach someone, you called them, and if they were home, you talked to them, and if they were not home, then you didn't talk to them, and that was okay too. And if you really wanted to find them, you could go look for them, or you could just leave a message, and whenever they got home, they'd call you back. Think about this, Saul. More people are still using VHS players than are making appointments that they have to uh, hold and meet someone for. That's quite a statistic. I mean, it is It is interesting, though. Obviously, the world's gone way down because of, of all of these things. But not only do you not have to make appointments anymore, you get to carry around all the stress of wanting an instant return on any sort of information that you're looking for. You get to add the added stress of calling people five times instead of once to check or text or whatever. And then all your texts are now coming in on your computer. Like me and you were just texting, but I was actually at a computer. I wasn't in a phone. So you're kind conf- of knowing that I wouldn't have been texting with you. I just, that rose me the wrong way. <laughs> it feels very eerie. And then another thing that we always talk about that hasn't actually come up on landline, even though it's really the subject matter of the entire show is that nobody has to talk to anybody's parents anymore. So it's a lost art. It's a lost art. And I think it's, definitely affect i would love to speak with a parent of a 16 year old about a kid's ability to communicate at a family party of some kind like a a holiday cocktail party if they're even worse at saying hello to mrs so-and-so because they never have to speak to her on the phone anymore look calling and getting a voice and you kind of have an idea of who is likely to be but it might be a parent it might be a sibling a brother or sister uh, it might be a kind of tipsy house guest who just happened to pick up the phone because everyone else was busy and they thought it would be funny. It added an element of real titillation, I think. It really did. And the best part was you didn't know what mood they'd be in. They might be annoyed that the phone was ringing. They might want to chat for like 20 minutes and you had to be, pretend to be really excited and just go through your whole history. And you never really knew. It was totally up to the person answering the phone, and it added a real element of surprise as well. Think about all the times when people would argue over who was going to have to call so-and-so's house because you knew their mom was a huge pain in the ass to talk to. Or... And then you'd leave a fake name and just say it was Noah. <laughs> uh... Look, another thing, another thing, too, is that way back when I carried around in my mind memorized as though on flashcards, a huge number of telephone numbers. I'm not talking about one or two or three people. I think I had probably at least 25 to 30 phone numbers just memorized. Everything from my close friends to, you know, the local pizza delivery to AJ's pager. Everything was in my head. And the thing about that was, was it worked and it was useful. And for that matter, probably helped 
my memorization skills. Do you have a single number memorized now, Alex? Well, I know your number by heart. I know. Right, I know yours by heart, but that's only because I learned it in kind of a pre-cell phone age. I memorized Tim's cell phone number, and that's only three years old. I know Gabe's by heart. I know my wife's by heart, but I take pride. I mean, I started a podcast called Landline, so I take part pride in remembering numbers um, because it is fun. It's a little fun game. Not only did you know all those numbers, but you would just stand at the payphone when you're waiting for a ride and you missed somebody and just start rifling through them all until you somehow got some connection of information that led you to getting picked up or going to meet somebody, or you didn't. And then you ended up dealing with all of the like terribleness that was not being able to get in touch with your friends until you finally found them someplace and it was like the greatest present that you could have ever imagined. And you used that word, what what was it again? Uh, like pay, pay, what was it? <laughs> Payphone. Strange word, that completely strange word but those used to be around it was a different world I'll, I'll never forget and this would have been i believe in um yeah probably let's call it june 2001 uh we were at food stop and this was right before i went to europe on that really weird uh trip with noah sam and sean and just, just to interrupt food stop for our listeners is like the you know, convenience store at the end of Main Street in a small New England town where everyone got together on a Friday night to figure out who was going to buy the beer, where were we going to go, or were we just going to stand around in the food stop parking lot until it was time to go home. And if you're listening to this, then I'm sure you had your own version of food stop in whatever town you grew up in. And if you're from a city, then you didn't, and that's too bad, too. <laughs> so somehow uh, Sean had the uh, the airline tickets for this trip to Europe. And he was making some stupid call on a payphone, and he literally left the airline tickets on the payphone and just drove away because that's exactly what the type of thing that he'd do, you know. And it's just such a perfect metaphor of the times that, number one, he was actually standing near a payphone with the intention of using it. And number two, that these airline tickets were hard tickets. They weren't emailed to us. They weren't some number that you called to print it out or whatever. This was like a huge deal that the tickets had been lost. It meant suddenly that people were not going to Europe as planned. So what did you guys do? It was amazing. But the pro here's, here's the best part. It was a product of the times and it was a solution of the times. We basically, what ended up happening is some good Samaritan found the tickets on the payphone hours later, and we ended up getting in some kind of phone contact with that person, obviously through landlines, and set up a meeting point, and the tickets were returned unharmed. Isn't it? It's. I wonder if some philosopher or anthro anthropologist has come up with the kind of uh, disease that you and I suffer from that we're illustrating right now in this brief little chat, which is that we always look to the quaintness of times past. And, uh, you know, as I said earlier in this conversation, I think that there has never been a more stark contrast between the times when we had cell phones and the times when we didn't have cell phones. However, there have got to be other illustrations, small and large, in history, where people went through a major change of technology, and there were people like you and I would sit around complaining about how something that 
made the world a more efficient place had had actually ruined it. Um, although I, I would argue that I'm not sure it has made the world a more efficient place. It's just made people think that they're more efficient. It's also made them... But the thing is that a lot, a lot of inventions very clearly, no one was really complaining. Like, just for example, when cars started becoming popular and people were no longer being killed by angry horse-drawn wagons or stepping in four-foot puddles of manure on Fifth Avenue in New York, there weren't a lot of people complaining about that. When indoor toilets were invented and suddenly you didn't have to go to a public outhouse down the street from you to use the bathroom. It's hard to imagine that people were really kind of complaining bitterly about the good old days. So I do think in some ways that this is perhaps a unique situation in terms of history. Well, here's the thought that I've laid out before, but of course that doesn't mean that I won't lay it out again. Has there ever been an invention that was so universally accepted as the cell phone in the sense that if you don't have a cell phone today, you are considered a lunatic, basically? You can't, you could be in the Ku Klux Klan and people would treat you better than if you don't have a cell phone. Or not better. Let me try. Hold on. Let me get it. Let me try that again. You would be more accepted if you were. Let's think. What else could you be? What is more accepted than not having a cell phone? All kinds of things. If you don't have a cell phone, people are basically wondering why, in the sense of what's wrong with you. You know, did something go wrong? Are you losing your mind and you forgot to pick one up? I mean, there. Even even if you have no money, you still somehow have a cell phone because you can buy one for 10 bucks from CVS and buy those refillable cards. So you're right that there's it's it's very strange behavior if you're not actively equipped with a cell phone each and every day of the week. I mean, that's something we could pull. We could pull the United States. What's weirder, being transgender or not having a cell phone? Definitely not having a cell phone, I'd say. What's weirder? Living without running water and electricity or not having a cell phone? Well, I think if you're without water and electricity, people just feel sorry for you. But it's kind of understood why. Because, you know, it's obviously something that you want and you can't have. If you don't have a cell phone, there's I don't think there's that element of pity. It's more just sort of this is a really strange person. What possible excuse could you have for not having one? Not having or uh, not having a cell phone or having a face tattoo. Well, I think that there are some people out there who are attracted and turned on by face tattoos, and I don't know of anyone these days who's attracted by someone not having a cell phone. How about what's more surprising to you, being for, someone being four hundred pounds or not having a cell phone? Well, I think if you're 400 pounds, again, there's a, a clear kind of reason for what's going on, and there's a clear problem and solution, and you can figure out how to lose the weight, and you can see that someone who's 400 pounds, obviously, you, you can make assumptions about what led to that. So to me, it's much more of a black and white thing. So I think absolutely more bizarre to be cell phoneless. <laughs> this is fun. This is a good game. I think we got to come up with more of these. we got to have one for every I'm show. I'm loving it. I think we've established that not having a cell phone almost puts you in this different species. 
I mean, Mel Gibson being openly anti-Semitic is more normal than someone not having a cell phone. He got brought back up on stage at the Golden Globes after yelling that the Jews were responsible for all the world's ills. And it's like, it's crazy. But the thing is that there's a lot of Mel Gibsons out there. They're not all movie stars, but there's plenty of them out there. And that, again, is sadly an understood part of how a lot of people in the world always have been. So there's a there's a technical term in economics that I just learned last semester, and I've forgotten it specifically, but it basically... <laughs> just it, call it Mexican watercress. <laughs> it, oh, I found out that watercress from last episode was actually grown in Massachusetts, so there was a little bit of uh, hyperbole, but... Um, my wife. I'm, I'm sure the seeds were Mexicans. Yeah. Um, okay. So there, it, it, basically, this term that I'm thinking of, I know the concept, but it speaks to how you need a certain amount of connections to have something like the internet work. So there was basically a barrier that the internet had to cross over in order for it to be a valuable thing. Like if 10,000 people were on the internet it wouldn't be as valuable as if a million people were on it because you couldn't connect with as many people, right? So if you were the only one with a telephone when the telephone was invented, you couldn't call anyone, so it was worthless. So what's interesting as we talk about the cell phone thing is there aren't enough people without cell phones. So there there isn't a language you can speak to it's a language that only a few people speak and they don't know how to connect with each other at this point. If you lived in a city, let's say you lived in Portland, Maine or something or Burlington, Vermont, and there were 300,000 people in your city and 50,000 of them did not have cell phones, there would be a communication technique that lived in that culture that would allow you to communicate in an effective manner, whether it was leaving notes, whether it was putting things up on a bulletin board, a kiosk in the center of the town, whether it was people actually listening to their voicemail, whether it was, you know, anything. I mean, it couldn't, it doesn't even need to be a carrier pigeon. It could be literally sending email instead of cell phones, but checking your email three times a day or whatever. Well, but, the funny, the funny thing is though, they'd probably do exactly the same shit that we did before we hit cell phones. And that, that goes back to my earlier point that the beauty about this is that now no one can live without them, but everyone lived without them, and they did just fine. Nobody needed cell phones until it became necessary to need a cell, cell phone. Do you think I'll ever have a time in my life where I don't have a cell phone? To be honest, I do. I, to be honest, I really think you will. I think that eventually you will live in a big house, and you will cure your own meat and grow your own vegetables and you will cook a lot and do all the things you talked about on the last podcast, which people should listen to for any reason they have not already. And I think at that point in life, you'll feel secure enough. And I really mean this to throw away your cell phone. I can't. And I do think you'll throw it away. Literally. I don't think you'll just decide to put it on the bathroom shelf or something. I think it will go into the ocean or a pond. I can't wait. I, I I've already been dreaming about not having a smartphone, but I haven't I haven't gotten together with that. I mean, if if the government gets to unencrypt the Apple phones, not that I really even know what any of that means, and maybe you can you can educate the world on that. But at some point, I think once I know that the government can fully just get into your cell phone from wherever they are at any time without any sort of protection, I think that's when 
I don't make a big stink about it, but I just get rid of my smartphone because I just don't want them to know as much as, as they want to know about me. Well, I think at a, at a certain level, there's a desire with both of us to de-evolutionize, to be able to go backwards. And maybe the first step is losing your smartphone and just having a flip phone. And maybe the second step is getting rid of that and just having a landline. And I'm not talking about, you know, wiping out technology or anything like, you know, total rejection, but a certain deliberate march backwards to see if that really is a better and happier place. So, yeah, here I am, Hanover, beautiful day, checking in with the parents, family friend visiting, going to go out to a great Vermont grass-fed burger joint called Worthy Burger with an incredible beer selection tonight that's in an old train station in South Royalton, Vermont, which is the home of the Vermont Law School, a notable environmental law program in uh, central Vermont. And tomorrow going to our friend Merck's 33rd birthday party, which is a German theme party, um, costume, dinner. And I think everyone will be wearing traditional like Dirndl and Lederhosen. But Anna and I are going to go sort of as German artists and uh, dress in all black because I think those are that that's the equipment we actually have. Um, and that's what's happening. Glad to be on a little break from Boston and enjoying the, uh, you know, cold but clear and fresh air of our home state and doing a lot of work this weekend, including getting the ice cream project ready for a $20,000 cash prize business competition that Babson is running between now and April. Wow. And, uh, well, you know, well, I'm behind. It's due Monday, and I decided I was going to do it Friday, and I was supposed to submit a faculty advisor a month ago. But um, I've e- I emailed one faculty member who's going to Cutter tomorrow to do some consulting, so she's out. And then I decided, I made the decision that instead of emailing another young entrepreneurship professor of which there are many I was going to just get in touch with the strategic planning professor I have right now who's in phase retirement he's probably 74 and he's like a hardcore Boston guy who helps major manufacturing companies and oil companies save tens of millions of dollars by looking at their uh, cost structure and showing them where they're spending way too much money so I'm ready to connect with him on a new hip food idea and get him to be like a, uh, uh, you know, someone who will push back on the fluffy stuff and ask me the hardcore questions about whether or not this thing's going to make money. And I heard he's a good golfer, so maybe he'll take me out to a country club in May or something like that. I mean, that guy sounds like exactly who you need in your corner. Exactly. That's what I think. Because you don't, you don't need a yes man. You don't need someone just to say, this is wonderful, absolutely, you know, who cares about the dollars and cents part of it. You need a crusty old accountant type uh, to drill down and to make you a little uncomfortable and a little frustrated and ultimately probably save you a lot of money or save your investors a lot of money. I agree. And I've been getting uh, great scores on all the quizzes in that class, so I think that he probably respects me on some level. And, uh, you know, the question now is, will he answer his email between now and Monday? Speaking of communication techniques, because 
I do feel like he's one of the people that we wish we were, which is someone who checks his email about twice a week and does not have a smartphone. He actually probably does have a smartphone. Um, but whether or not he gets back to me is is uh, intricate to whether it goes on. But yeah, it should be fun. So that's what's going on with me. What's going on with you? Not too much. Um, yesterday, a long meeting with my CPA got, got taxes sort of nailed down and everything for the year. So that, that felt good. Um, I realized I just hate paying taxes, but I guess that's a, a pretty common problem. Uh, we talked about different loopholes and other interesting uh, financial trivia. So that was that was a pretty good meeting. Uh, what else happened? Um, oh gosh, so so two days ago, I want to say I was in an Apple store loitering around. Actually, I was in an Apple store trying to buy a microphone for this very podcast, but it turns out they don't stock microphones anymore. So that was disappointing. And then I, um, I set eyes on this girl who was standing by herself kind of fiddling with, with an iMac. I believe it had a retina display. And this girl was just shockingly gorgeous, just beautiful, beautiful, kind of blow you away. I was like, oh, my God. And that stood out even more in an Apple store because the average person in an Apple store, you don't really think sexy when you see them, you know? So just because we don't know your taste, like what does shockingly gorgeous mean to you? We trust you, but we want a little more details. I mean, you don't have to give us her, you know, waistline, but what what does that mean? Like blonde hair? That's fair. Bro- That's fair. I can, I can paint a picture. Um, so without a doubt, I want to say she was either half- Probably Asian, I'd say 80% Asian, possibly Latina, but I'm pretty sure Asian, uh, and almost definitely half white as well. At least that was a mix going on. Very sultry, very tan, uh, flowing black locks of hair, pretty uh, pretty slim, but sort of curved in all the right places, as they say. Dressed with sort of stylish casualness, like, uh, you know, probably Luluman pants, those stretchy tight ones maybe off to a yoga class, obviously in great shape. And that was how she looked. Very, very sexy. Great. And she, her standing face was a smile or at least a, a, a friendly frown? No, I mean, she didn't look – she she looked pretty uh, pretty focused. But, but then again, she was in an Apple store, and she was looking at a computer that she was obviously thinking of buying. So – I understand that. No one's no one's really walking around an Apple store grinning from ear to ear, except possibly the people in the blue T-shirts who work there. All right. So on, onward and upward with your story. So I looked at her and I, I just decided I, I absolutely have to talk to this girl. But I was obviously I was put on the spot. I had had no time to prepare. I got flustered and I couldn't think of any opening line that didn't evolve involve Apple equipment, which is obviously a stupid way to go. So I noticed that she was really tatted up. Both of her arms were covered in tattoos, more or less from, from wrist to uh, to elbow or to shoulder, which was, you know, and for her it worked. Uh, she didn't look like she just got out of jail or something. So I noticed that on one of her, the inside of her forum, there's a large color picture of what looked to be a British admiral. You know, the uniform, the um, the fancy admiral's hat, everything. And so in my mind, I thought, gosh, maybe, the, you know, there's an off chance that she just loves British naval 
history and maritime battles. And I can spend, that can be my opening. I, Cause I can discuss that with the best of them. Believe me, I could, I could talk about British maritime history for at least four to five hours without breaking a sweat. So I went up to her, I approached and I said, that's an interesting tattoo you have. May I ask who it is? And I was running in my mind through all these different admirals that I know so I could come back with a witty response. And she looked up and she met my eyes. She had a beautiful, sultry gaze. And she spoke two words. She said, my husband. So that was the end of that. And obviously it turned out that the face I had mistook for an 18th century British admiral was just some guy dressed in Marines battle gear, whatever, whatever they were. This is where we need Max on the phone. But isn't that just, it was such a perfect just shoot down. Not, not only did I happen to ask about the one tattoo on her arm that happened to be the face she was married to, but she didn't need to shoot me down without doing anything more than answering my direct question. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible story. The, the thing is that I like about it is that you're, you're using, if this analogy flies, you're using a specific key that you have. Um, and it's only going to fit one lock. And you're, you're pounding on a lot of fortress gates, that's for sure. Um, because if you, if you do come upon a sultry, dark-haired yogi, uh, with curves in all the right places, who is a picture of the beautiful ethnicity of a California woman and is um, covered tastefully in tattoos. And she does know the history of various admirals that you've read in detail about. It's it's all over right there. You will marry that woman. <laughs> I propose on the spot. That's it. On and, the spot. And she'll be into you. So oh, yeah. you can't and we'd, and we'd walk arm in arm out of the Apple store chatting about 17th century maritime trivia. Exactly. And I mean, her father owns, you know, a restored clipper ship and he's he's a tech guy and, you know, she doesn't actually need you to make any money. And in fact, she introduced me to that girl. Alex. And in fact, she'd rather you just pursue, friend. you know, you need to continue to pursue your writing and maybe instead of doing all this fiction, you really need to just ham it up with some sexy maritime history work that no one's gotten into yet. So um, I don't while think sitting on while sitting on the houseboat that we purchased together. Exactly. And but you know she's not going to hang around the houseboat. I mean she's got a schedule. She's got something to do every morning, and she actually teaches yoga not only for fun but for the good of the community. She's teaching people who just got out of jail. Um, how to come back to their, you know, center and be, be upstanding members of the community. But so don't change your key. You can't change the key. And in fact, you have to walk away from that shutdown with your head held high because you actually didn't want what might've come out of that. If she ended up just having the tattoo of her boyfriend who's in the Marines or husband in the Marines on her, on the side of her arm. I need, I need to keep my, vision pure is what you're saying i didn't i didn't want a sordid affair with a woman who had no interest well in British hold on here a sordid affair i spoke nothing of the sort i mean you should always no, want but i understand what you're saying I, I have to maintain a purity of vision because i have my hammer and if i hit enough locks 
or as you put it, a no. key, and I turn enough locks, that eventually there's going to be an unlocking somewhere down the line, and it will lead to a houseboat. Yeah, I mean, we can... Or a clipper ship. We can both agree you're you're living in a make-believe land. I mean, we know that. That's a good setting. And oh, yeah, of course. And you're walking around a, uh, you know, giant landscape that is your life, and it's full of fortresses, and you have one very intricate, unique key... And you're trying all the locks. It doesn't mean that you can't sleep in the shacks in between the fortresses along the way. I mean, you got to eat and have a, a place to sleep. So I think that the the, uh, the the sultry affair or whatever or whatever such description you made that those are the shacks in between. Um, so, but when you find the person, no, it's it sounds like you need to go to some maritime. Maybe you need to get get into like a, a tour of a famous clipper ship or, or, you know, Chinese fishing vessel that's someplace in the San Francisco docks and, and get some tour guide and ask her out for a date. Well, I got, I got a relative who's at the Tiburon Yacht Club. So I think that's a good option. Uh, I sail at the Berkeley Marina. I'm bad at sailing, but I, do the process you know i pull the ropes when they tell me to and i sit in the stern and then i scurry around while the boom swings and everything and i haven't tipped over yet so i'm i'm you know i'm, I'm trying but clearly clearly i need to expand my ocean horizons as it were well you are trying everyone will give you that and not that we thought we were going to do a big analysis of your dating life but i'll tell you this i'm going to be frank with you a lot of the people that are hanging out in the places you described are too dumb for you. Yeah. So right. it's great if some, you know, hot 26-year-old whose dad is rich and lives in Tiburon wants to go out for some dates. But, like, when you're 63 and you're doing whatever weird stuff it is you're going to be doing at your house with your piles of typewriter papers and, you know, you've gone even more into your weirdness as I have into mine – you're going to need you, you need your intellectual equal in a partnership. That's the reality. That's like the, it's very true. That's the it's one major true. thing I can say from from being married. I can't give many lessons on love or life, but I can say that having your intellectual equal in in a long-term partnership is the key because ultimately all the other stuff happens, but it ebbs and flows. I mean, and I don't just mean like love and, you know, sex and all of that, but rather there's there's exciting nights at the out at the restaurant and there's bad nights out at the restaurant. There's great Sunday mornings with the paper and there's bad Sunday mornings with the paper and there's annoying dog walks and there's great dog walks. And I mean, there's more good than bad, but it's life. I mean, life is not necessarily one continuous, exciting date. It's just it's not the way it goes. So, oh, no, it's not. Oh, so, no, it's not. So have so having someone who's going to want to talk to you about. 17th century maritime history. I mean, I think we should put that up on the big board as one of the major checkboxes. You're right. You're right. And look, I could have talked about many other periods as well, whether maritime or otherwise. I just thought he was an admiral. So right. I thought he was a you know a general. Then then we could have gone in that direction. Exactly. And it's your your interests are too vast. You, you know, I mean, it might be that if you found the mirror image of you, that that actually would be overwhelming. But if you can find someone who is at least excites your intellect in one small area of your encyclopedic 
selection of things you're interested in, then you're that's a start. That's you know that's a that's a crack that you should start start uh, jackhammering. Now, what if I should just start giving people prior to when I go on a date or after the first date, if I just give the girl my this address for the podcast and that's just sort of fast forwarding through like the first three to nine months of a relationship and they'd either strongly dislike me or be like, you're kind of crazy. But in spite of that, maybe there's something here. Well, we've had a blog before that was quite entertaining to people. Now, I'm not sure if those people dated us, but they, they kept us around and they laughed at us. Um, I think in its purest form, any sort of art that you're doing is good to expose to the world. And this is, I don't know if it's performance art, but it's some sort of creative endeavor. Yeah, I mean... We're having honest conversations with our souls completely unbared. I'd say that's a pretty good summation of this podcast. You want someone to have the excitement of peeling back the onion, as they say in business school. But it doesn't yeah. it doesn't mean that they can't that they're that it's not wouldn't be interesting for them to, you know, hear stories or have a window in. They'll never So I should make I should make them cry is what you're saying. No, like yeah, well, yeah. I mean, also, you have parts of you that are um, quite distasteful that you will never expose on this podcast because you're representing yourself. So quite, quite distasteful. So, I mean, as do I. So unless you're going to, you know, come on the podcast and really bash yourself, at least there are those parts of the onion that you'll never expose that they'll always get to discover. And those are exciting things to discover, too. But listen. The I, rotten core. <laughs> and the moldy corners. I, I don't know, Saul. I mean, I think I think there's dating. I think you should just keep dating. You know, here's the thing. I go I go on a, at least one or two dates a week. And another question I was actually going to ask you is whether it's correct for me to just continue paying for everything. Because I have to say that my my entertainment bill on a weekly basis is just through the roof. <laughs> through the roof. Now, would you say that that statement is directly related to your meeting with the CPA? <laughs> that's part of it yeah i mean you know there's um there's a there's a lot of money flying around well do you have fun forget about what it is that i mean i you know i know you're a good person and i know you're not expecting anything from from paying for the meal you find that isn't it your own entertainment that you get from paying for the meal because you like to have some window to the past of sh of chivalry i mean is that what it is like why you think it's the right thing to do, but also you must gain some sort of utility out of it. No, it, it's pure chivalry. Look, I'm as as crazy as it sounds to say, I I have moments of where I'm not even going to call it generosity, but munificence. Where I'll just I'll, I'll I'll pay for things that it's it's like when I brought when Tim invited me to dinner and I brought him a stuffed woodcock sitting in a basket with a, a fake piece of fruit. And there was no reason for me to spend that $55 on that stuffed bird. But I did it only because I knew it would bring a smile to his face and Rachel's face when I showed up with it, which it did. And then obviously they threw it away as soon as I left. Was it like a, wait, it was like a decorative, like a piece of taxidermy or it was something that you would bake and then eat? <laughs> no, you wouldn't want to eat this. This was for mounting on a wall. Okay. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a centerpiece. It was for a table, 
and it was a stuffed bird. Oh, I believe a woodcock uh, might have been a grouse, but I'm pretty sure it was a woodcock. Uh, and yeah, it was designed to go on the center table, and it freaked their dog out. Their dog absolutely was terrified by it, very suspicious and antagonistic once the initial fear was gotten over. But but there it was, and I knew it was a waste of money when I bought it, and I didn't care because it was fun buying it, and it was fun giving it to them, and it was fun bitching at them the next time I came for dinner, and it had vanished from sight, and obviously it was never going to be seen again. Well, what's your go-to with the girlfriends? Are you going out to fancy dinners? Or are you guys going to get like a hip burrito and a couple of Coronas? Or like what? What like? Or does it depend on no, how you? Not, not fancy dinners the the first time around. All right, that's uh, good. Although there are fancy my my fancy dinner bill is is also through the roof. Uh, no, usually usually a couple of drinks. Sometimes you know sometimes a bite as well, depending on kind of which way the wind's blowing. But it's the Bay Area, you know, every, nothing, nothing's cheap. You're spending money no matter what. Well, I mean, who do you want me to play here? Do you want me to play the uh, your accountant, like Vince's accountant in Entourage? Or do you want me to play the part of the person who is vicariously living through you and hoping that, you know, the food tastes good and the girls are hot? Well, I, I think I, I'm, I don't want to define who you need to be. If if I'm making ice cream, maybe you need to be the guy who's yelling at me saying you have to cut your costs and trim the fat. But maybe not. But as soon as I define that, then you're just you're you're not becoming the person I need you to be and you're just becoming the person I want you to be. Well, I want you and Tim and Gabe, people who make good money, to buy themselves a house. So I know that seems like a big jump for the listeners, but this is all connected. I am I do not make good money, and in fact, I'm now taking on more debt. I think we're all hoping that I will at some point figure out how to make money or come into some somehow, so to speak. However, I have a few friends who have managed to stick with a plan long enough that they're now making a good income. The three of you are a great example. I'm sure we could come up with a few more. You all have chosen to live in the most expensive places in the United States of America and probably the world. And as a result, <laughs> which inflates your inflates your salaries and inflates your revenue for sure. But as Bob Turner, the uh, first year accounting professor at the Babson MBA program, told all of us, the third or fourth class, you know, revenue isn't really the story. The story is profit, and that seems to be something that is easy for everyone to understand, but really think about it. If you make $100,000 a year to live in upstate New York, but you only spend $20,000 a year to live there, and you're netting $80,000, you are building more wealth than you saw, certainly. You're not saving $80,000 a year, I assume, I, and we don't need to get into your, you know, but I, I mean... Can we, are you saving $80,000 a year? <laughs> to be honest, more. But wow. we, we won't get into that. Okay, well then why are we worried about your dinner bills? Because I don't have a house. Okay, because you don't have a house, right. Because you still can't, anyway. because you still can't buy a house, even with whatever you're saving. And you've only been saving that much for a few years. But anyways, who knows? Whatever, you're saving some amount of money. The point is this. I worry about the fact that people in our generation are throwing their money 
at landlords instead of throwing it into equity, I think we can say that even with recessions, depressions, changes in the marketplace, the fact that people still are populating the earth at an exponential rate means that real estate by a rule will continue to be more and more valuable. Even if it's not an astronomical rate from 2001 to 2015 in the Bay Area, it still is going to grow at a few percent a year. So it's a solid investment and it seems to be the most solid investment unless you're taking predatory loans or whatever. So it bothers me that you guys, you guys all eat out too much. You all go on trips. You all buy expensive clothes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You all make. I don't think Gabe does actually. He, I mean, he spends a lot of money, man. There's a lot of oh, money. Oh no, just just the clothes I'm talking about. Oh. <laughs> so I just I, I now again, who am I to say? I'm your poorest friend. I probably owe all of you money if we really did the math. And, um, you know, I don't have the ability to go on all the trips and all that stuff. And I have not reached the same professional success that the three of you have, but you're, you're, you're doing pretty well. It's not, you you just got back from St. Martin and you're, I'm doing great. My my life, my life is great, but I mean, you could argue that I'm closer to buying a house than you guys are because I'll end up living like someplace like Providence, Rhode Island, where I can get a house for $15,000 down. So, oh, yeah. So it's just that's my concern about the dinners. If you didn't, if you spent half the amount of money on the dinners, the drinks, that would be probably another, that would be a few tens of thousands of dollars a year. Look, Alex, life is a roller coaster, and there's every possibility that 10 years from now, I'm going to be sitting street side holding a cardboard sign telling people about all the money I blew on fancy dinners in my youth. And maybe that's. And I know it's a stretch to say youth where I am now, but I'll say it anyway. My youth. But you like, but it's it's your joie de vivre that drives your financial decision making. Yeah, it's irrepressible. So is that bad? I don't know that that's bad. I don't know. I I do know that there's there's a saying that someone expressed to me once. I believe at a funeral, saying that you don't you don't take any money to heaven. Right. So in other words, you you, you got to try to have some fun while you're around. The the scary part is if we got my financial calculator out and and looked at, you know, we could do like a retirement with it. When do you want to stop working and how much money do you need based on the rate of inflation from age X to age when you die? And it's just it's an astronomical amount of money based on. But it's, but I will say and then we got to hit this weekend news. So we're going to we're going to wrap on this. But. I will say, to be honest, I never want to stop working. I don't mean I want to work constantly and a lot till the day I go, but I just, I don't really go for the whole retirement thing. I think drawing a black and white line and waking up one day and saying, okay, I'm never going to do any work of any kind now for the rest of my life. That doesn't do it for me. I think that's really boring and I fear boredom even more than poverty. So for me, I absolutely intend to always keep working and ideally the work that I'd be doing would be producing some kind of income. But more than that, it would keep me on my on point. It's going to keep me sharp. So I hope I never retire. Last thing on this for me, my sister, who's incredibly successful and professionally and a really a force to be reckoned with in her industry, which is fashion. She's 35 years old. She climbed the ladder in New York fashion 
She did a lot of incredible stuff. I would go to fashion shows. I would sneak backstage. I would be a foot away from Puff Daddy. She was living the life. She was not making great money in the beginning. She then went into much more commodity fashion, like stuff that was getting sold at, sold at department stores. She was in charge of Jessica Simpson's line. She was in charge of a billion-dollar brand. She then got hired away to a company in Italy where she was making a lot of money. I mean, she was making whatever it was, $400,000, $500,000 a year. She got fired from that job eight months or 12 months into it because they asked her to completely change their company. She changed their company, and then the board of directors decided they didn't like the change. And now wow. she, and again, like I, this is in no way taking away from her ability. She's going to come back on top. She's getting it up. She doesn't really have any money anymore. Um, and she didn't save it. And she, it's not, or what she did, she did save a lot, but then she had to live on it while she was unemployed. And she lived in, you know, she lives on the Lower East Side in a one bedroom apartment. She doesn't, she lived lavishly though. She lived like you, like someone like you might live. She took cabs everywhere. She doesn't cook at home. You do. She doesn't. You guys are not the same person, but I'm just saying like you can spend all the money you make. And, uh, so be careful. That's all I'm saying. It's a funny truth. You really can. You really, really can. And she wouldn't change anything. And she's the same as you in the sense that after saying you're not the same person, she feels the same way. Who, <laughs> who, who cares? She wants to get the Cadillac Margarita because she's living her life. She wants to get the enchiladas and get chips and guacamole beforehand. It's like it's. It's life. It's fun. It's fun for her, and that's what she lives for, and I love that about her, and it's so fun to be around her, and she gave us the most amazing Christmas presents for years. I mean, my entire kitchen, the professional Cuisinart I have, the professional KitchenAid mixer, all Christmas presents from Phoebe year after year after year, but now it's just she's not on the street. She's making it work. She's got a job. She's paying her rent. She's eating she's you know seeing friends and having a great time but she's back in a position that she never thought she would be and she'll get out of it and she's building equity in her own ideas now which is awesome and maybe those are lessons everyone has to learn but it is it makes me cringe as i'm in a poor position and i have been for years and i wish that my rich friends would be making sure that they're holding on to their money that's all all right a, a grim but useful assessment of the picture all right well, let's do news and then let's wrap Okay, this week in news. So um, we're going to go all over the world a little bit. To start off, I have one that's really going to get your hackles up. Down in, um, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, a baby dolphin dies after tourists pass it around for selfies. And if you're interested and you want to see the visual, there is indeed a really cute baby dolphin just being swarmed by disgusting ten overly tan, I should say, individuals poking and petting it. And they kept taking selfies until they just, it died. And then they just left it on the beach and went back to tan it. What do you think? Well, I think a lot. I think that if you want to know where to get this news first, go to NewYorkPost.com. That's NYPost.com. People wonder Gawker, Facebook, all this stuff. If you want the dirtiest, shittiest stuff first, you go to NewYorkPost.com. Because I saw this, you know, not that I'm – great story. Glad you brought it up. Glad we're talking about it. It just makes me laugh. It's like it's one of the places I go on the internet, and it's it's funny how they just have, like, the dirtiest stuff still. Um, 
Why is it that this story makes me more angry than a million Syrian refugees not having a place to go in Europe? No comparison. No comparison. Because this makes me just, it's like, it's like, you know, get me a flight to Buenos Aires and a Jeep to the beach and let's like get a bunch of guns from an illegal warlord in Brazil and just mow these people down. And would you feel bad if, if a tidal wave had swept in and just taken them out? No, and and if every I, person in that selfie with that poor dolphin was just swept right out to sea, leaving their families to mourn them. Here's another question: How is this what those people came up with? Like, how did no one say we got to stop doing this when they're taking the pictures? It's it's going back to the thing we were talking about, like how everyone has a cell phone and it's crazy to not have one. Everyone thought that was okay and it was crazy to say, put the dolphin back in the water. Don't touch the dolphin. Don't touch marine mammals when they're washed there was up. No, there was no responsible adult at the party. It's insane. Yeah. That's there, wasn't in- a, there wasn't a single person who said, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe the dolphin is a sea creature and is probably not breathing slash getting dehydrated. Maybe it's a baby, and the fact that you're poking and touching it is going to send it into a state of total shock. It's like if me and you flew to—this is going to be a weird analogy, but we flew to the middle of Canada and went up, and there's some community there where the currency are dried leaves, and we see everyone is just raking gigantic piles of dried leaves, and we have no way of understanding where they're coming from. We have no way of understanding how that— currency will ever be worth anything to us i have no idea how to understand what the value of that selfie is what is the value of that selfie to those people that that was the decision that they made i don't get it i, I don't you keep that selfie for the next 20 years and say by the way this was right before this beautiful creature died because of people like me it's just it's like the 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 things that really you talk about get my hackles up the things that make me see red elephant yep. elephants dolphins whales and you know obviously it's like orangutans and all that it's like so easy but like these are animals that in some ways are probably it's not like they're smarter than us like they're smarter than us in the ocean like they literally have the same cognitive ability we do we just don't know understand how to communicate with them they're remarkably intelligent and i mean it's like watching the cove yeah yeah i That's just a movie to make you mad i just don't understand how those people do that. But, you know, again, it's like that's when you go. It's just like the recycling issue. That's when you go to like, I don't like I'm looking forward to all the volcanoes exploding and our entire species getting wiped out. Exactly. Moving along, we're going to do a little business news. So quarterly results came out and stores like Kohl's and Sears are really struggling. They're shutting down stores. CEOs are pointing fingers, blaming, you know, everyone they can. And there's some serious issues with the sort of long-term health of these stores. So what's your analysis? Is brick and mortar just kind of a stucker's game these days? What's going to happen with some of these long treasured American institutions in the short term? Well, I think that even though I hate to say it, yes, obviously Amazon has a huge effect on all of the the, um, retail store uh, sales numbers. 
when was the last time you went into a Sears or uh, what was the other place? Kohl's. Yeah. You go into these places and now look, I'm an upper middle class white heterosexual male. So I do not represent the world. What What is it that you buy in these places? What like what you walk in, it's 4,000 square feet or whatever it is, 10,000 square feet. No, it's. 50,000 square feet. What is in there that you need? And so the other thing is that like, okay, so you would say, well, if you go into a Target, there's stuff you need. If you go into a Walmart, you know, it's a pharmacy. They've got, they've got everything. I was in a Target for the first time in six months, maybe two weeks ago, and they, they have everything, right? So I think the brand, oh, yeah. the brand, they have not been able to reposition themselves and there's been competition. The other thing too, though, if if we printed out their 10K, which for all you business neophytes out there, the 10K is a form that all publicly traded companies have to file with the SEC every year, and it's like usually you know anywhere between a 30 and 80 page document that goes over what happened this year at the company. And there's a lot of qualitative writing describing strategy decisions and this and that, but then ultimately you have to get basically to what results you know is this is their tax return ultimately i mean it's not but it's the financials and it's revenue minus costs minus and all these all these a lot of these places are locked into major leases long-term leases or they own a lot of the real estate so you end up having huge financial obligations to the bank or to the landlords and so you really are it's like macy's is the same way and there are up until recently, and I think it's either this year or next year, they're changing the rules, but you didn't have to put long-term leases on your balance sheet. So when you wanted to show profit to your shareholders, you wouldn't, you didn't necessarily have to book uh, leases as an asset. So like Southwest Airlines, they don't own any of their planes. They only lease their planes. So if they don't book those leases as a liability on their balance sheet, then there's a couple billion dollars that doesn't show in the financial picture of how their company is doing. So they can say like, look, we did great, but then they're not talking about the fact that they owe all of this money. They're locked, they're legally locked into a 10, 20 year lease with these planes. So I think this- So what's your, so what's your prediction 10 years from now, it's 2026. Are stores like Sears and Macy's still around or have they you know gone the way of um Woolworths I think they're gone the short answer the long answer I think is a discussion unless they completely reposition themselves but I mean I think the Sears brand two two interesting things it brings up is there something to be said for having like an amazing 50-year run and then without telling anyone I mean this would never work but let's just play pretend you close when you're up leave the table when you're up I mean, yeah, Sears was walk away. Sears was shipping home kits to people in the fifties and sixties, right? You could literally buy earlier. It. Well, way way earlier than that. Oh, yeah. right, the twenties, the thirties. It's like those. So you could buy houses, you could buy everything. But then, yeah, I mean, I think the internet thing is huge. And look, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but I think some of the things I'm saying have got to be right. I'm throwing a lot of darts here. Well, I, I think the thing is though that companies they're like people; they want to live forever. They don't want to picture a world where they're not in it, and they do everything they can to just keep on breathing. And Walmart— It's because if... they're run by people. It's a human impulse. Right. When a company like Sears 
doesn't want to think we had a great run for 50 years. They want to think that in 500 years, whatever, if you're going in and you're buying a new hover mower, then you're going to be getting it at Sears. Right. But, okay, moving moving on. Well, wait, one time. last thing because there's so much here. I just – one last thing. What happens to the strip mall if these places all go under? It's like they built these strip malls, West Lebanon, New Hampshire, all around the world thinking that this was the new way everyone was going to shop. What if what if cycles happen faster as time as we get you know as we go into the future and it turns out that Main Street becomes the next thing again in ten years rather and I think it's already happening like the local person is now the popular thing at least in contemporary culture so what are going to happen to these fifty thousand square foot buildings on the strip if no one can pay the rent to be there? That's a great question. I I honestly I honestly think that they'll just split them up and you'll have three places where you can go for frozen margaritas. <laughs> All right. Move instead on. of one. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. Uh, we're headed to the Middle East. Uh, this is pretty grim. So Business Insider ran a headline saying ISIS is now using a metal tool called, quote, the biter to clip the flesh of women who disobey its dress code. So, we don't need to get into the particulars because obviously they're every bit as, as disturbing and unpleasant as they sound with a machine called the biter. Uh, one woman says the biter has become a nightmare for us after she escaped. Um, but here's the thing with ISIS. They're getting almost cartoonishly evil. Every time we think there's no possible way ISIS could become more evil, they figure out a way. You know, we, they cut someone's head off what could there can't be anything worse than that? Then they put someone in a cage and burn them. Uh, they kill, do mass killings. They enslave people. What can possibly be worse? They figure out the only thing they haven't done yet is to destroy ancient artifacts. Now suddenly, in the midst of all their human trafficking and enslavement and genocide and everything else they're doing, someone somewhere high up in the ranks of ISIS invents a machine called the Biter. So. Are there any limits? Do you think that they just have literally a department of people sitting in front of laptops just thinking of new ways to become even more cartoonishly evil? How does this sort of thing happen? How does it play out? Well, you know, at the risk of uh, getting myself in trouble, and I, I'm not going to try to do that specifically, but let me say a few things. And I'm not trying to offend anyone here. Peel the onion, Alex. Peel the onion. So... This is worse on a incremental level than what the Nazis did because it's like it's like literally, you know, it's like torture. It's like instead of just like shooting somebody in the head, you're like you're peeling you're killing them by peeling off every fingernail and every ounce of skin, right? So it's like that's not really what's going on, but it's the analogy is they're they're killing a lot less people. They're affecting a lot less people, not a, a ton less, but less. Whereas the Nazis, it was like a fact, a death factory. Like, well, I, I would say, though, that anyone who is experimented on by the doctors in those death factories would definitely beg to differ. Okay. okay. But we, we, won't, we won't get into the... the no, no, I mean, I, again, I, I, it's not, I don't think ISIS is bad. And who cares? I mean, it's like a stupid argument to have, right? But it, it's interesting because it's like it's, it's almost you, the cartoonishness of it is greater. Can we say that? Like, 
it's almost like when again, it's it's eighty years ago now. I have no idea about it other than the you know survey history classes I've taken. But there's an element of craziness to it. It's it's more unbelievable somehow. It's like the true evil that happened in Nazi Germany is so unbelievable, and yet it was not merely to like. It wasn't like Donald Trumping people. It wasn't like it, it's like the it's it's like ISIS is doing this in order to make people have conversations like the one we're having right now, right? Well, I think a key difference too is that we're seeing it play out in real time, both literally seeing in terms of the video and the fact that it's being reported on while it's happening. With the thing with Germany, no one really. If right. you were an average citizen, you didn't know anything about it till it was already in the past. Right. And then the war was over. Or supposedly. So supposedly. We read about the fighter, said. and we have to also recognize that probably somewhere at this very moment in some horrible patch of desert in Syria, the fighter's being, doing whatever it was supposed to be doing. So who is going to take care of this is the question I now have. Because I, I think what the Middle East needs to come to terms with is – the United States and Europe have tried to solve what they deemed problems in the Middle East. I don't want to get into the politics of it, but it hasn't worked to the United States and Europe's advantage. It's like every time you're in business school conversation about like how do you get recycling to work and how do you have something good work, you have to find a financial advantage for the participants because ultimately money is what drives all the decisions. That doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do, but it's the thing that will get people to actually change their behavior. So in this case, the U.S. has invaded Iraq twice in the last 20 years, Afghanistan. We've had all, you know, we've had our hands in the Iran-Iraq thing. We've had our hands in the Saudi against everyone else thing. We've had our hands in the Israel thing. And ultimately our goal is just to make sure that it's not our problem, but we've had a lot of things that we thought would work out one way that have actually turned out exactly the opposite and have become a nightmare for the internal politics of our country. So who in the Middle East is going to fight ISIS? Who in Syria is going to step up and say, I need to die today in order to stop these people in the long run because that's the right thing to do? Now, it's easy for me sitting in a warm, you know, office in New Hampshire where I have no military conflict that's in my neighborhood or country. But I don't you think from a statistical or uh, from a strategy point of view that like who who's going to who's going to say no to them? Who's standing up to them? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's going to be a process. I think that certainly, you know, governments are doing a lot more in some ways than they were a couple of years ago, but also at this point, the genie's out of the bottle. ISIS is no longer a couple of guys on pickup trucks racing through the sand. They now basically have a kingdom that produces a lot of money and does horrible things within and outside of its borders. And it's a much bigger problem. And yeah, it's going to take a lot of cooperation. And I don't think anyone in, in America truly thinks that the way to solve the problem is to send in 100,000 troops and beat them down and then occupy for another 15 or 20 years. But it's everyone d- everyone in the Middle East is, is motivated by such selfish and self-centered interests that I think it makes it very difficult. 
how do you beat a bully at school? And I, Chris Baker, podcast guest that we're recording another podcast this weekend, but he said these are not bullies in school. These are not just people that, you know, these are more, but that, you know, he, he argued with me about the idea that ISIS is not just like some psychological bully that's, and I, I get all that. They're organized, they're political, they're, they're much more, you know, comprehensive and sophisticated than that. But what do you do when you're in a, in a, in a relationship where you simply can't, get power back from an entity like this there's got to be like a uh, there there must be a blueprint in history to somehow take away their ability to get what they want uh well it's pretty tough i mean there's it's a pretty unusual situation modern day for for a an entity that you know a sort of rogue nation if you can whatever you want to call them i mean in some ways they're more of a nation than Libya at this point, but they're obviously not an operating country, and it's a pretty new dilemma for for the modern age. They you know, don't... We, we thought we thought after World War II we'd more or less left our our giant sort of world warfare stage behind, and we weren't really going to be doing so much of this anymore. And that seemed especially true after the last Iraq War. I don't know, man. I think it's like they don't care about living, so it's very difficult to figure out what to do about them yeah it's an unpleasant situation it's convoluted i think that you know the shia sunni thing is just it's it's when you really try to drill down and I've, I've read a ton about it and tried to learn it as best i can and it's it's so crazily complex that to use your school bully thing it's kind of like if you know if the math teacher had secretly paid the bully uh to go take the lunch money from someone else and if the principal was on the payroll from like some other kid's father to have his own agenda. And if each person on the playground was not just scared of the bully, but was also trying to figure out how they could take up more of the playground. I mean, it, it, it's a bad analogy and I won't try to put too much stress on it, but it's a very convoluted situation. I don't know. Some, yeah. Somebody has got to start suicide bobbing them. It's it's like it's moving like on, you, yeah, moving on. Yeah, moving on to something. Moving on from the Middle East, we're yeah. going to greener pastures in Salem, Oregon, where a crew of seventy-five goats was fired for not doing their job well. Poor job performance from the goats. Wow. Um, yeah, six weeks of goat rental cost the city. They were hired to um, to eat invasive species and to keep the grass clear and everything. Six weeks of goat rentals cost the city five times more than traditional methods. The goats rang up a bill of $21,000. And on top of that, um, they ate the wrong parts of blackberry bramble. They ate the leaves and they didn't clear the, the blackberry bramble part, meaning that prisoners had to be hired to, to pick up after the goats. So anyway, that's news. Um, goats are popular these days. You can get them off Amazon. You see them in San Francisco. Golden Gate Park, Google has goats cleaning its campus. Uh, Boston has a herd of goats under its employee. Chicago O'Hare Airport has goats under its employee. Um, they're being threatened by sheep, apparently, who are another viable uh, <laughs> lawn mowing control. But this particular crew of goats, I don't know what happens to them now. There's 75 goats without a job. Thoughts? Um, there were two goats in Portland, Oregon. Salem's the capital, about an hour south. Lived in Portland, big field in the middle of southeast Portland. 
It was a it was goats living there, um, and they were on Portlandia. And of course, in the world that is gentrification, the lot sold and some development is happening there. And the goats, maybe, hopefully, those goats were part of the herd that you described. Um, blackberries are a problem, and Mitch. Our friend Mitch, who is uh, also on a podcast you should listen to, listeners, he took a summer or spring at his house where he cut back all of the blackberries. It was like weeks of work. Um, He like poured kerosene on their roots. I mean, he did the whole nine yards. And within... Well, why don't you like blackberries? They're delicious. I love blackberries. They are... Okay, why didn't Mitch like them? Because they take over your entire yard. Like, you can drive in Oregon along a road, and you'll be looking at what you think is some just head natural hedgerow or whatever you would call it. Like, a you know, and it's it's literally, like, the biggest bram- continuous bramble of blackberries you have ever seen. And it's encroaching on the highway, and they literally, like, will burn the patch of grass between the blackberries and the highway in order to fight it back. They are an invasive species, and they grow at speeds that you know are never f- before seen, so to speak. So, well, I ju- I just feel like they're they're coming with with something to offer. You know, they're they're bearing gifts, and those gifts are blackberries, and they're delicious. There's plenty of invasive species that don't really give you anything in return. So I have a hard time sympathizing with an anti-blackberry movement. All right, Saul. Well, if we want to do a fun uh, summer vacation activity one time, me and you will go to Portland for a week. We can go out to Savi Island, which is in the Columbia River, and we can just pick blackberries and bring them to the pie shop where I used to work, featured from last podcast, and they'll buy it, <laughs> and they'll buy them from us. Or they'll take your restraining order out on you. Exactly. Um, well, look, I'll, I'll do that. I just... I. It's, yeah, it's, to me, blackberries have never been a problem. Now, in terms of the goats, I'm all in favor of it. I think, I think goats are great. It's great that they're being put to work doing good, honest labor. I'd happily own a goat if I had you know, a few acres with blackberry brambles and other things that needed to be kept under control. Great job of the news. Thank you. Thank you. That, so that's, this is good. We got we got some good stuff in. I think I think we're winding down now on this Friday afternoon. I think that if you're on the East Coast, you're probably getting ready for some sort of happy hour. I think if you're on the West Coast, you're probably setting your watch for a few hours so you can also do happy hour a little early, get a jump on it. And hopefully everyone has a great plan for their week. It's true. The sun is going down in the Connecticut River Valley. I am going to the aforementioned Worthy Burger in South Royalton, Vermont. And should be a great weekend in the uh, in the area. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for podcasting, Saul. I think it was a great episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. Um, before we get into the closing credits, intentions for the week. I'll start. Um, Go for it. So my intention for the week is to do a balancing act. I got a wife going out of town. I've got four major projects due. I've got two dogs to walk, and I've got exams on the horizon. At some point in the and I've got yoga I want to go to. Uh, at some point in these intentions, I will stop making it about business school. But this week it's on the mind, and I've got to write a 
all sorts of stuff, business plans, operating agreements, make slide decks. I'm presenting on Monday. I'm telling the story of the pizza cart in a Pecha Kucha, which is a uh, slide presentation where you have 20 seconds each slide. So I'll tell the story wow. about tell the story about that on the next podcast. What about you, Saul? What are your intentions? My intention I formed it halfway through this one. I think for a sixty day period, I'm gonna take all the money that I would have spent at my personal tailor. And I'm not gonna to go to my personal tailor for that period of time. And instead I'm gonna take that money and put it towards a charity of my choosing. Hey, good idea. Maybe we can even have some people call in and uh, take votes in case in case I'm indecisive about which charity. I think maybe for next episode, you'll come up with a couple options and me and you can discuss them. Sounds good to me. All right. Well, thank you for listening, guys. For more episodes, go to talkforaliving.com. Find us on iTunes at Landline Podcast or find us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash Landline Podcast. Enjoy the week. Enjoy the day. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your husband. Put a lot of non-technological energy out into the world. Bye, everyone. It's been a pleasure, Alex. Enjoy the burgers. Talk to you next time. All right. Adios. Adios. That's it, folks. Another incredible episode of Landline Podcast. Call the landline, 617-744-1895. Leave a message. Get on the show. Be a guest. Suggest a guest. Tell me to stop doing this because it's a waste of my time. Spread the word about the show. Tell a friend. Get him to listen. Let's get those numbers up. Let's get that giant commodity Monsanto sponsorship we've been working on. One day, we will be the king corn of podcasts.